The reading this morning is from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public, public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your, as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will, get, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will, get, they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the Gospel of Christ. Well, thank you, Sandra, and good morning, everyone. Very nice to see you and to be with you this morning. Um, because it's communion, we never have notices, but just uh, an encouragement to read the new sheet. There's a lot of things going on in church life. There's a few notices that are in there, and um, please do have a look at it. And we've got two of our um, ministry team on holiday at the moment, so James and Charlie Ballinger and the Ballinger family, and Chris Farr. Please do pray for them that they'd get a well-deserved and well-earned rest and break. Well, let me pray and then we'll think about the things that Sandra just... There's a lot in that, isn't there? A lot of incredible things just went on in those few verses. Let's pray and then think about them. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of coming together this morning as brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for the chance to, um, to look at the coming of Jesus, to think about what it meant that there was about to be a baby born and this baby was mind-blowing, incredible. And we have the privilege of looking back at that, knowing what he grew up to do and who he truly was. But I pray this morning as we, we look back to a time before his birth that we would see the incredible things that went on and see the significance of them. Not just for then, but for now. For each of us here this morning, for the lives that we live and eternity itself. So Father, by your Spirit... Be amongst us this morning and help us as we pause and think on these things. We ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, as uh, James has said, we're uh, continuing uh, the series in Matthew's Gospel that we began last week. And uh, getting into Matthew means that we're going to come face to face with Jesus. We haven't done that yet. We didn't do it last week. We're not doing it this week. We'll only barely do it next week, but he does come next week. Uh, but it's always good when we're face to face with Jesus. And if you were here with us last week, we saw that Matthew's Gospel began in a way that sometimes we're tempted to gloss over. It began with the genealogy of Jesus, a long family tree dating all the way back to Abraham. And sometimes uh, when you read the Gospel, if you're anything like me, you're tempted to skip over parts like that to get to our part where the story really begins. But we saw last week that the genealogy was very important. It showed very deliberately that Jesus, this baby that was about to be born, had perhaps the right pedigree to be the promised Christ or Messiah. And we, we looked at what that meant. 
we looked back to the Old Testament to remind ourselves that God had promised his people that one day a Christ would come, a Messiah would come. And this Christ or Messiah was going to be God's appointed leader to save and rule God's people. And Israel, down through the centuries, had been waiting for this Christ to come, this Messiah to arrive. And Jesus' genealogy showed that he had the right pedigree to be the Christ because he was a son of David and a son of Abraham. And both those people in the Old Testament had had promises made to them that one of their descendants would be a blessing to the world. But more than that, the genealogy had four Gentile women in it, showing that this Christ would not just be a blessing for Jews, but for the world. And more than that, these four Gentile women showed that the Christ would not just be a blessing for good people, but for all people. Well, as we pick things up this morning, we see Matthew continuing to prepare us for who it is that's about to arrive. The genealogy has showed some of the truths and some of the wonder about the baby who's about to be born. Our passage, our verses, I think, show it even more clearly. So we pick up the story today in verse 18, where you can see behind me, Matthew tells us he's about to, about to give an account on how the birth of Jesus came about. And he then gets into the details, and the details are incredible. We're told that Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. I think there's lots of euphemisms going on there. We're told that Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, that is, they're engaged. But before they came together, that is, before they have sexual relations, Mary is pregnant. Now, this is one of the things that causes people to be very nervous about Christianity. How can you believe that a virgin got pregnant and gave birth? Um... This has truly never bothered me. Even when I was a non-Christian, I remember thinking, why would people have a problem with a virgin birth? You've got to have a very small God if you think God can't um, sort out a miraculous pregnancy. If you think he could create this world, then a miraculous pregnancy I don't think is beyond the realms. I don't quite understand why people get so tied up in knots about it, but that's what goes on here, a miraculous pregnancy. And so in verse 19, Joseph has in mind to divorce her. Now that can seem odd because verse 18 said that her and Mary were engaged. So how can Joseph be planning to divorce her? Well, in those days in Jewish culture, an engagement was more formal than it is today here in New Zealand in 2020. Being pledged in marriage was a formal binding contract. It was entered into before witnesses, so today you can just go away with your beloved and uh, get on one knee and it can all happen privately. Back then, no, to be engaged had to be public itself, in front of witnesses, and it could only be broken by death or by a formal divorce process. And during this betrothed period, where they weren't quite married but they were engaged, uh, sexual relationships were not entered into and the husband and the wife still remained living at their parents' uh, house. So they are in this formal betrothment period. And so Joseph plans to divorce Mary when he finds out that she's pregnant. But Joseph is stopped by doing that because he has an angel of the Lord appear to him in a dream. Verse 20, after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, here's another son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfil what the Lord had said through the prophet, 
the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Again, just in a couple of verses there, there's an enormous amount packed into it. The angel tells Joseph that Mary's baby is the result of the Holy Spirit and he commands Joseph to take Mary home as his wife, presumably wife here in the full sense because they're going to go to their home, not just to their respective parents' homes but to their home. And the angel then informs Joseph that Mary will give birth to a boy and that verse 21, he's to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now that's slightly odd. Why because? Why is the name Jesus linked with saving people from their sins? Well, the name Jesus is the Greek version of a, of a Hebrew name, the Jewish name, Joshua. And just, so same root name, Jesus and Joshua. And Joshua means literally God saves. So to name this child Jesus is, well, there's a link here, Jesus saves, God saves, but it's a specific salvation, save his people from their sins. We're then told in verse 22 that all this happened fulfilling what God had spoken through the prophet. That's the prophet Isaiah over 700 years earlier. The virgin will be with child, will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Again, another, another kind of hint that this baby who's to be born is God. And we're, we're told that Joseph wakes up and wonderfully does everything that he's been instructed. Now, do you see how much is in this passage? There's a whole lot we could focus on today. Only a few verses, but major things packed in. We have virgin pregnancies. We have an angel of the Lord visiting and speaking to someone in a dream. We have the work of the Holy Spirit conceiving a child. We have all of these things fulfilling a prophecy from over 700 years before. We've got the two names that this child will have, which we could spend all our time focusing on. Emmanuel, meaning that he's God with us. Jesus, meaning he'll save people from their sins. There's a huge amount in here. And so we can't do all of it. I just want two things for us to take away this morning. I want us to think about the way that Matthew is showing the... He's furthering the identity of Jesus in these verses. He's showing more fully and completely who Jesus is. And then I want us to see a wonderful example that I think Joseph sets for us. So just those two things. Firstly, the way that the identity of Jesus is further revealed here. And what we see in these verses, and I want you to be very clear on this, is unparalleled even in the Bible. We're used to the Bible being full of the miraculous, being full of wonderful things, supernatural things. But even in the scriptures, there's nothing like this. Last week, the genealogy showed us that the coming baby was big news because he was the son of David, son of Abraham, he was the Christ. But this week, we see even more than that. Think what these few verses show about the baby that's about to be born. Verse 18, she's pregnant through the Holy Spirit. This is God's doing. This doesn't happen anywhere else in the scriptures. If we're familiar with kind of Greek mythology and those sorts of things, you get stories, don't you, of gods impregnating human beings and, and all that doesn't happen in, in the scriptures with the Christian God. This is unique. The pregnancy is explained and announced in a dream by an angel of the Lord. Miraculous dreams and speakings of angels of the Lord doesn't happen very often in the scriptures, only for very significant things. It happens here. Verse 21, we're told that this baby will save his people from their sins. We'll think about this in a moment. 
but the whole Old Testament has been about the problem of sin and the fact that nothing can sort it out. And now we're hearing that this one is going to be able to sort it out. Verse 23, this baby is also going to be known as Emmanuel, which means God with us. These are incredible things that are being said about this child who's coming. You don't see it anywhere else. And it focuses on the identity of the child, who he is and what he will do. On who he is, that he's God, and what he will do, that he will save people from their sins. And nowhere in the scriptures is this kind of language spoken of, of anyone else or anywhere else. There are incredible people in the scriptures, and people who did wonderful uh, things for the Lord and for God's people. But none of them are described like this, and none of them could do this. Moses was the greatest prophet in in Israel's history. He could do nothing about the problem of sin. Do you remember as he was getting the tablets, the the laws, uh, what was going on back at camp? They were already breaking them. Do you remember? Uh, He could do nothing about it. David was the greatest king in Israel's history, but he could do nothing about the problem of sin in his own life or in the people of God. Jesus is set apart as completely different. He's also completely different, though, to any other world religion. Think about all the other world religions. None of them have a figure like Jesus. Muhammad with Islam is not a god. He's a human being who's thought to have received the the words from Allah and put it in in the Quran. Think of Buddha. Buddha is seen as a human being whose teachings were recorded because they were helpful insights into into life. Jesus is seen as God who saves people from their sin. It's very different. Now it's worth asking, why sin? Why does he save his people from their sin? Aren't there other things we could focus on that we need saving from that would be more important, more necessary, more urgent? Couldn't he save people from their sickness? Coronavirus, or couldn't he save people from poverty? Couldn't he save people from suffering? If we think that way, we're thinking the wrong way. Sin is the cause of everything else that's bad and causes the struggles and pain of life. Think of everything that causes difficulty and pain and suffering in life. It can be traced back to sin and the fall. The cause of it all is sin. We sometimes focus on the consequences, but the cause of it all is sin. The relationship issues, which cause us so much pain in this world, either because we feel alone or betrayed or because the relationships that we value have turned their back on us, and all that goes back to the garden and sin. The relationship problems with God, all of it goes traced back to the garden and sin. The lack of security in this world because we can't trust even the the ground to remain stable all goes back to the creation being cursed because of sin. All the sickness and death that causes so much pain in this world all traced back to the fall and sin. The judgment that we're under in front of God all traced back to sin and the fall. They all go back there. Until sin is sorted out, All the consequences of sin, the struggles in this world remain. Until we're saved from sin, there's no real solution to the problems of this world. All we're doing when we're trying to tinker with the the kind of consequences is just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Only sin can sort it out. And we've got to get back to remembering that as Christians because somehow sin has fallen out of fashion even in Christian circles. So we get very excited about certain social justice concerns. 
and rightly so. And we get very interested in theological debates on end times or creation, and, and rightly so in a sense. And we become very intentional about building community and fellowship. And we get passionate about music and we forget about sin because it's seen as too negative or too serious or not important enough. It was the reason Jesus came. If we lose sight of that, we will lose sight of the primary reason Jesus came. When John the Baptist, who knew better than anyone else what, who Jesus was and what he was coming for because his whole job was to prepare the way, when he saw Jesus, what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was his reason. We've got to be careful as beware of people that focus on Jesus without sin having to do with who he is and why he came. And so do you see that these verses add to the genealogy from last week? They build on it. The identity of the baby who's about to come. He's not just a son of David, as wonderful as that is. He's not just a son of Abraham, as incredible as that is. He's not just the Christ, as wonderful as that is. This is God himself who will save his people from his sins. There's no one else like this. No one else in the scriptures like this. Matthew is telling us explosive news at the beginning of his gospel. The whole Bible up to this point has seen sin as the problem and this is the guy who's going to sort it out. The whole Old Testament, the whole plans and purposes of God have been waiting for the one who would arrive, who can fix things and Matthew is saying this is the guy. That's why we're going to have the privilege over the next little while as we're in Matthew's gospel of focusing on Jesus of seeing him as our saviour and our king and realising again what, what the thankfulness we should have for that, the appreciation, the love we should have for him because of how incredible he is. That's what Matthew's trying to get across. So we see a deeper un, uh, kind of unfolding of his identity. But I want to focus too this morning on something that we see in Joseph. And as I said, I think he sets a wonderful example in these verses. Uh, I think he's the the unsung hero of the birth narrative. Nearly all the focus, rightly, I think, goes on Jesus and Mary. But Joseph's pretty good in these verses. Two things to notice about him. Firstly, did you notice Joseph's reaction when he found out Mary was pregnant? We know the story. Try to forget the story for a moment and find out that the person you're engaged to is pregnant and you know it's not you. For some of you that would be very hard because you would be the one pregnant. Reverse it or something... But think about that for a moment. And then think about his reaction. Verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. That right there is amazing. Joseph finds out his fiancée is pregnant. He knows it's not his. All of this in a culture where this would have been a scandal in Israel, where he had every right morally... Uh, in terms of society uh, standards, to call for her public shame and punishment and where he personally must have felt embarrassed and hurt and betrayed and angry, what does he do? He has in mind to divorce her quietly so she would not be disgraced. Remember, this is before the angels explained anything. As far as he's concerned, Mary can only have been pregnant because she's been unfaithful and uh, done so, and yet he still acts in this gracious way. Here is someone who doesn't pay back wrong with wrong, who exhibits grace to those who've wronged him. 
How do you respond when people wrong you or hurt you? And I mean genuinely hurt you. He would have been beside himself at this point. How do you respond when you've been wronged? I feel like this is an area where we as Christians should stand out from the rest of the world at the moment and yet sadly we don't. We live in an age, it seems to me, increasingly today, this outrage, offence, taking offence culture where the worst thing someone can do is wrong us, the worst thing someone can do is say something that we disagree with and the world responds to that with hatred. It responds with anger. It respond, we, we, we don't seem to be able to get on with people anymore who differ from us on any subject, politics, relationships, all those kinds. Whoever thinks differently to us is the enemy. Whoever's wronged us is the enemy. And we Christians should be different in the way we treat people that have wronged us. We should be different in the way we treat people who've done wrong. The hypocrisy of our culture at the moment that says it's very tolerant and yet as soon as someone who's famous does something they think is wrong, they are plastered all over the newspapers and condemned for what they've said or done. That means that then afterwards social media jumps on board and they get all these more hateful comments. And I saw overnight uh, there's a TV host in the UK who's tragically committed suicide. Carolyn Flack, who is the host of Love Island and these sorts of things, she'd had some difficulties in her life. She's 40 years old. She'd had some difficulties in her life, I think, made some public mistakes and it's plastered everywhere and the way people treat people who've made mistakes is awful. And as Christians, we should set such a different example. Joseph thought he'd been wronged here. Genuinely thought he would have been wronged. He acted with grace and kindness and love. And grace and kindness and love doesn't always mean approving something, doesn't always mean encouraging something, doesn't always mean affirming, sometimes it's calling something out to be wrong but it's for the good of the person who's done it, not just to vent and make me feel better. We should be different as Christians from those from the world around us, wanting the best for those from those who've wronged or are sinful, do we? Or do we act like those around us? How do you respond when you've been hurt or wronged? It's awful when we as Christians demonstrate hate or apathy or entitlement or arrogance. And it's pride that's at the heart of all those responses, isn't it? When we think we're different than the, the person who's wronged us. Or What's God's view when he's been wronged? He sends his son Jesus because he loves you. What's his attitude to you when you've done wrong to him? He gives his son to be your saviour. That's what we're to do. Joseph did it a little bit here. Jesus, of course, is our great example. It's very easy to act appropriately and graciously and kindly when someone is behaving well towards you, when a person's treating you as you think you should be treated. It's quite another to treat them graciously when they've wronged you. And I can assure you that Joseph wasn't thinking, do you know what? I bet Mary's pregnant because God's got her pregnant. And Now, that wasn't in his mind. And yet he has the resolve to treat Mary with honour and respect and care. The other example I think that Joseph gives us in these verses comes at the end of the passage. Again, put yourself in his position. He's heard all this bizarre stuff in a dream, right, from an angel. And how does he respond? Verses 24 and 25 are great verses. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took Mary home as his wife. He had no union with her until she gave birth and he gave him the name Jesus. Joseph just does it. 
What he does here is he trusts and obeys. He trusts that what he received in the dream from the angel of the Lord was true and he obeys. He puts it into effect in his life. That phrase there, trust and obey, is the heart of the Christian life. Trust and obey. Another, another way of saying it is faith and repentance. Trust is faith and obey is repentance. That's the Christian life. It's not more complicated or hard than that. You need both of them. You can't just have one. You can't just trust and then not obey because then you're not really trusting. You're not really loving the Lord. Uh, and you can't just obey. Some people try to earn their way to heaven. No, you've got to trust in the Saviour and then obey. But you've got to have both. And you and I are never going to be in the exact same situation as Joseph where an angel comes in a dream to tell us that our betrothed is about to give birth to the Lord. And That's never going to happen. I feel confident to say that's never going to happen to any of us. But it's the same principle at work. In the circumstances that Joseph found himself in, he was to trust the Lord and obey. And the circumstances for Joseph must have sounded bizarre. What? My fiancé's pregnant giving birth to a, a baby conceived by the Holy Spirit who's going to grow up and save his people from there. How, how, does, he, how does he get his head around that? But Joseph trusted and obeyed. I think um, you know, Joseph wasn't going to be the biological father of Jesus, but he would have been a great earthly father of Jesus if he carried on setting this example uh, when Jesus was born. And just in case you're thinking, well, it was easy for Joseph to trust and obey... Uh, because the next time I have a dream when an angel of the Lord comes and gives me specific instructions, I promise you that I will trust and obey. You can kind of think that way. But Joseph had already demonstrated this in the way he dealt with Mary. He didn't have specific instructions then, but in the midst of the circumstance he found himself in, he trusted that the Lord was in charge and he lived in a way that he thought would, would respect the Lord and love other people. He took the right attitude. In every scenario as Christians, we want to trust and obey. Most of us will struggle in one area of those two. For some of us, we struggle in the trusting and we try and do it all under our own steam. You can't. Trust the Lord. Obey is important, but trust the Lord. Know that you've got a saviour. And then when you fall, and you will fall, you, you, it won't break you because you'll still be trusting the one who holds you. For some, they trust, but they actually don't care too much about the obeying. As Christians, we should pursue holiness with our whole hearts. I don't understand Christians who've got this attitude of, well, Jesus died for me, so now I'm free and I can kind of do what I want. If sin's that bigger problem that God became human and died for you and I on it, what, what kind of attitude is it for us to shrug our shoulders and go, well, it doesn't really matter how I live? We want to trust and obey. Both are important. I think Joseph's got a great attitude here. Uh, it's the attitude that Jesus, of course, put into effect most uh, clearly and perfectly, but Joseph does it well here. So do you see the picture that Matthew is painting? In this first chapter, Jesus hasn't yet arrived, but we're ready for him, and the build-up has been huge. The one who's coming, the one that you, uh, we're going to look at over the next little while, is the one like no other, God himself coming, to sort out the problem of sin. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this chance to look at the Lord Jesus and I thank you especially this morning we get to do it on a morning where we share the Lord's Supper, casting our eyes forward to that time when he achieved what he came to do, when he gave his body and blood 
as the sacrifice that we need to make us your children. Father, I pray that um, over the course of these studies in the book of Matthew, as we focus on the Lord Jesus, we would come to an ever-increasing love, thankfulness and appreciation for our Saviour and King. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Let's bow our heads as we lift our prayer to God.